For Tuesday, June 16th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the coronavirus has been with us for about six months now, but it's not going anywhere anytime soon. The pattern we're going to see is successive waves of uh, easing of lockdowns, increasing transmission, and then more restrictions on social movement. And then when those are lifted, more waves of infection. Dr. Carl Reddy from the Task Force for Global Health joins me for a look at some of the challenges developing countries face when it comes to responding to the pandemic and to discuss the COVID-19 outlook for the rest of the world. That's next. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Utilizing low-dose radiation scans that reveal cancers, cardiac issues, precursors of dementia, and more. Information about early health screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. At this point in time, there are just a few countries that haven't seen cases of COVID-19. And while the disease has had major impacts on developed countries like the U.S., it also presents unique challenges to developing parts of the world. Dr. Carl Reddy runs the Tefinet program for the Task Force for Global Health. It trains epidemiologists all over the world, many of whom are responding to this pandemic. And he joins me now for more. And Dr. Reddy, to start, this program, Tefinet, aims to, to train and mobilize field epidemiologists all over the country. These are people who are out in the field working to fight diseases of all kinds. Walk me through, if you could, what this program's specific response to this new coronavirus and, and COVID-19 has really looked like around the world. My program response is clearly part of the overall task force response to the pandemic. So Tefinet specifically has actually started a coronavirus learning hub. And here there is a curated set of documents and guidelines and information to help field epi training programs around the world. Uh, secondly, we have an online platform called Tefi Connect. And Tefi Connect links these FETP graduates and current residents in training. And, and just to clarify, FETP, can you just tell me what that stands for? Certainly. So these are field epidemiology training programs of which there are around 85 around the world, serving more than 100 countries. And they serve to build capacity in field epidemiology. 
in order to strengthen health systems and fight pandemics such as the one we're currently facing. Uh, we have monthly teleconferences with all the FETP programs around the world to share what they have been doing and uh, so that other programs can benefit from this. Obviously, in addition to what Tefinet is doing, you know, the task force has distributed 1.4 million masks, gowns, respiratory products and beds, even ventilators to over 100 U.S. hospitals and public health agencies. And, uh, for example, they've also ensured that underserved populations in the U.S., like the Navajo Nation, have access to this valuable personal protective equipment in their health facilities. Talk with me about what that frontline work looks like in, say, a country that's that's not the U.S. I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with how our country has been responding to this pandemic, but how has it been working in other countries? Sam, I think the important thing to bear in mind is that, you know, in many developing countries, uh, health infrastructure and resources is very different from that in the U.S. In fact, health systems are are challenged in terms of access, in terms of uh, workforce. You know, there's staff shortages, there's not enough capacity to go around. So essentially what the FETPs do is FETPs are often housed in within the Ministry of Health or in national public health institutes. They work very closely with the Ministry of Health and they work across various uh, areas of the pandemic. So, for example, they assist with contact tracing. They assist with case investigation. Uh, they participate in gathering data and information, which is later analysed you, I mean, clearly this is a new pandemic and a lot of information that comes in needs to be cleaned and analyzed in order to look at trends, in order to look at risk factors. So it's a wide range of activities that they are act actively involved in. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about what that disease detective work looks like. We've seen here in Georgia, our State Department of Public Health really have to message to people consistently and repeatedly the value of being a willing participant in contact tracing. They've said again and again, if you get a call from us, please pick it up <laughs> because we need you to participate. And so what are some of the challenges that, say, these contact tracers would face in other countries around the world where, where y'all work to train people? Okay, so I think, you know, a lot of, if you think of some of the issues that ordinary people face, you know, as a result of the pandemic, you know, some people are experiencing a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. So they often may be suspicious of contact traces, believing that they might have another agenda. It takes a lot of training, which is what these FETP programs actually do, to prepare contact tracers, you know, for them to develop a rapport with the people that they in contact with, to develop trust, because obviously they need to make clearly build a relationship with the person that they're tracing if that person is going to give them the information that they really need to make contact tracing effective and successful. So, you know, it's the softer skills often of, of building trust, establishing a relationship and uh, I suppose, you know, showing your commitment and your sincerity. 
It also gets me wondering about people's willingness to accept public health messaging. We have seen here in this country this pandemic become politicized. Are those similar issues that y'all see in the countries where you work, where there's just either general skepticism about public health messaging or it's somehow seen as political messaging? Yes, I think, you know, with, with every pandemic, there's a mixture of, of all of that. And once again, this is closely tied to people's fears and anxieties and suspicions. Uh, for example, during the Ebola outbreak, where people were asked to change their burial practices and deceased family members, the bodies were taken away before families could conduct their ritual observances. So obviously this didn't go down very well with people. And now with COVID-19, we are seeing in some countries there have been attacks on healthcare workers because people have insisted on, for example, in I remember there were episodes in India where there was a religious observance, there was a, a, a kind of a mass gathering, and people got very angry when healthcare workers sort of asked them to disperse and they actually attacked healthcare workers, you know, believing that healthcare workers, you know, are have other agendas are clearly working for the state, but maybe pushing the state agenda and there's maybe mistrust and distrust of the state agenda. So we have seen that in countries. I mean, I remember episodes in India in particular uh, related to COVID-19 where healthcare workers were actually turned upon. I'm also wondering if there are things that are working better in other parts of the world that have maybe proved a little bit more challenging for us here in the United States. In other parts of the world, for example, the anti-vaccine movement is, is not as established and not as widespread, for example, as it is in the United States. Having said that, there are different kinds of challenges that healthcare workers face in, in other countries. I mean, it might be simple challenges related to access. So, for example, there's uh, heavy rains and roads become flooded and it's very difficult to access certain villages or communities or towns get cut off, you know, where there's, you know, there's a, a significant transmission of COVID-19. Secondly, I, I think in, in other countries, there's often a lot of faith-based organizations, community-based organizations uh, that are active in health activities that support the work, that do a lot of work for the ministries of health, you know, which is clearly not the case in the United States. And sometimes these organizations have established relationships of trust with various communities because they have been providing health services for for decades. So, you know, that often does make a difference as to how people perceive uh, healthcare and healthcare workers and messages, you know, that come through. Is there something that is inherently challenging or difficult about responding to COVID-19? The one thing that I've certainly heard from people here in the country is this idea of asymptomatic spread and the fact that we don't know how many people have this virus who don't show symptoms. I'm wondering if, if that's the kind of thing that makes this disease harder to fight in other parts of the world, too. This is a new pandemic. So, you know, there's a steep learning curve. In a sense, we're sailing the ship as we build it. So a lot of the answers that we would like to have, that we would need to know, 
are actually being researched as we speak. There's a lot of very dedicated uh, people and committed people that are doing the research, right? And I think, you know, you raise the issue of asymptomatic transmission. And the challenge with that is that, you know, the World Health Organization, for example, is the organization that collects data from various countries, right? And I mean, the challenge clearly is that data might be collected differently by different countries. So there's issues with data quality, the way the questions are actually asked, that influences the data that you have, the quality of the data that you have. And asymptomatic transmission is a difficult area for which the data is still being gathered. Because remember, there are patients who are asymptomatic because they're still going to develop symptoms, so they're in the pre-symptomatic stage. And then, of course, there's the group of patients who are totally asymptomatic, who are not going to develop symptoms. A lot of the research is currently being done, and so the answers are, are, are not very clear right now. But, you know, clearly from the public health point of view, we try to err on the side of caution. So, I mean, hence the use of social distancing strategies, of face masks, uh, you know, to try to limit transmission, you know, just to well, rather err on the side of caution. Because you mentioned the WHO, we've seen here in this country a lot of skepticism of the WHO and their real leadership in this response to this pandemic. Do we need a global response here? Sam, my answer is unequivocally yes, right? The WHO plays a vital role in coordinating efforts globally. They play a role in developing policies, in bringing partners together, and provide technical assistance to many countries. The WHO also links um, national and regional stakeholders like ministries of health and non-profit organizations. And of course, all of this has led to the successes of the WHO. We mustn't forget that the WHO was instrumental in eradicating smallpox, in reducing maternal and child deaths, uh, reducing the transmission of infectious disease like HIV. If we just remember HIV, I know it's been more than 20 years. And we've seen in this current pandemic that national borders don't protect people against the spread of disease. And I, I think working together with the WHO uh, is an important way to keep Americans safe and healthy by helping to protect and save lives around the world because this is a globalized world. And as we've seen, travel and trade links an outbreak of a disease in one country can become a pandemic, as we've seen most effectively with COVID-19. So I think, yes, I don't, I don't think, uh, I think we need to work with the WHO. We've seen now um, in more recent weeks, this disease taking more of a foothold in, in parts of the world that maybe previously had not been hit very hard. These are places, like you said, where I'd imagine there's not great health infrastructure there to start with. Talk with me about what this pandemic could look like a year from now in these parts of the world that aren't starting with the kind of health infrastructure to fight this that we have here in the U.S.? 
as we've mentioned earlier, you know, many developing countries don't have the health infrastructure to deal appropriately with the pandemic and they need support, they need assistance. And remember, whilst the pandemic is going on, all other diseases are still going on, right? And in fact, because of the efforts towards the pandemic, many countries have suspended their immunization campaigns for diseases like measles, like polio, okay? But I think in terms of the pandemic affecting other countries, there's going to be waves of infection, more people becoming infected. Remember, many of these countries have already had like almost three months of lockdown. In some countries, the lockdown was very intense, and this has significantly impacted on economic activity. And, uh, you know, people are actually struggling to put foods in their mouths in some countries because they haven't been able to work. So it's very challenging. And I think even in developed countries, so in the United States and in Europe, I mean, we are going, there's going to be a second wave of infection. Okay, we're going to see increased cases uh, once the weather gets cooler. Because I think with all of these pandemics, the virus only burns itself out when at least 70 to 80% of the population has been infected. And then there's no more susceptible patients. So the pattern we're going to see is successive waves of uh, easing of lockdowns and shelter of homes, increasing transmission, and then more restrictions on social movement. And then when those are lifted, more waves of infection. I mean, hopefully there will be an, an adequate treatment developed, hopefully by the end of this year. Uh, there's like a lot of candidate vaccines that are being trialed right now. And clearly once there's a definitive treatment available and hopefully if there is a vaccine that is developed, that would obviously change the game. But until then, we're going to see these waves of infections in different parts of the world. Dr. Carl Reddy runs the Tefanet program for the Task Force for Global Health, which trains epidemiologists all over the world. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.
I'm Max Hines, executive chef at Breaker Breaker and host of Just Set, a podcast featuring the folks moving Atlanta's culinary scene forward. I've worked in restaurants for most of my life and heard countless stories from the people who make your dining experiences possible. Some inspiring, some heartbreaking, all of them important. Listen as Atlanta chefs, mixologists, farmers, and more talk about opening restaurants, concocting the perfect drink, or supplying local produce, all while shining a light on challenges in the industry. WABE.org slash Just Set or your favorite podcast platform.